I'm Tom Kerr. Whether we contracted the virus or not, none of us have gone untouched by the COVID-19 pandemic. This is especially true for frontline workers who care for the critically ill. So in part three of our series on mental health's impact on workers' comp, we're going to look at the psychosocial effects the pandemic continues to play on our society and how post-traumatic stress disorder has become a term used more often in our industry. Joining me today are our experts, Nikki Wilson, Tammy Bradley, and Mary Ellen Blue. So Mary Ellen, to start off, how has COVID impacted societal views on mental health? Okay, Tom, there's an old English proverb that says there is no great loss without some small gain. And from my perspective, if there are positives that have come out of the COVID-19 pandemic, I believe one is most certainly an increased awareness of mental health issues in our society, really particularly in terms of how changes in everyday routines that we take for granted, such as going to work, going to school, socializing, even being able to hug our family and friends, has impacted our psychological well-being. According to the World Health Organization, the COVID-19 pandemic has induced a considerable degree of fear, worry, and concern in the population at large, and particularly among certain groups such as older adults, healthcare providers, and people with underlying health conditions. And measures such as quarantine that have impacted so many people's ability uh, to perform their usual activities, routines, or livelihoods can really result in higher levels of loneliness, depression, harmful alcohol and drug use, and even self-harm and even suicidal behavior. The Centers for Disease Control have also addressed the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on mental health in our society, saying that while public health actions such as social distancing are necessary to reduce the spread of COVID-19, they can also make us feel isolated and lonely, and it can increase stress and anxiety. There was also an interesting survey conducted by the U.S. Census Bureau in December of 2020 that was in, the intent was to evaluate the impact of COVID-19 on mental stress. And that survey found that more than 42% of people surveyed reported symptoms of anxiety or depression which was an increase from only 11% for the same survey the previous year, which was pre-pandemic. So really that shows that just COVID-19 alone has really increased the amount of anxiety, depression, other mental health in just the everyday population. It's important to remember, I feel, that we're all at risk of mental health issues during our lifetimes, whether because of a physical injury, illness, adversity, or even now a pandemic. But I really feel that psychological impact of COVID-19 that many of us have experienced over the past year has also shed new light and understanding on the potential psychological impact workers' compensation injuries can have on an individual. And in turn, hopefully, this will open the door for earlier identification and intervention for those at risk. And Tammy, I wonder if you can dig it a little deeper into that. Has COVID brought more attention to mental health factors and the need for treatment? I think so, Tom. I certainly know that employers are taking notice and doing more on a preventive front to offer support and access to mental health intervention. Also, from a 
comp perspective, you are seeing a lot of either proposed or enacted regulations from many different states across the U.S. because they are beginning to take notice on the need to re-examine some of their regulations around the compensability of mental health conditions, particularly around those people that they define as first responders. Every state has a little bit different definition of how and who they would include in that group of first responders. And while I think it's getting attention in the industry, I believe that there's still a general concern of opening Pandora's box and offering interventions, pre-claims such as crisis intervention services really can help reduce an employer's exposure uh, to mental health claims, uh, particularly in the case of PTSD. But for those injured employees that have with a primary physical diagnosis, you know, identifying that issue earlier in the claim is really going to be key to resolving it in a timely and efficient manner. And I think as an industry, we too have to acknowledge that we may have attached a stigma to people having a mental health diagnosis and all those misconceptions that we talked about earlier. And we have to then work past that because ignoring the problem is not going to make it go away. And Tammy, since you had mentioned PTSD, let's talk about that. Post-traumatic stress disorder is often a term people associate with those who have experienced a distressing event such as war, violent attack, those type of things. So what does PTSD mean in workers' comp cases? Yeah, you know, Tom, that's very true. Would you believe that 90% of the U.S. population will likely be exposed to one or more traumatic events during their lifetime? I think historically, you're right, PTSD was first identified in World War One, And since then, the study of PTSD, the treatment of PTSD has certainly progressed. But over time, we've come to see that you don't have to be a soldier to experience PTSD. We are seeing that in our first responders. PTSD for police officers is estimated to be between 6 and 8%. Uh, even ambulance personnel as high as 20%. People that have everyday jobs exposed to traumatic events day after day after day. As we get into the discussion, how this relates to work, 2 million American workers have reported being victims of workplace violence each year. Unfortunately, there are many more cases that probably go unreported. Research has identified that there are certain factors around work that may increase the risk of violence. For some workers in certain work sites, things like uh, people who exchange money, work in the public, they may be working with volatile, unstable individuals. People that work alone or in isolated areas may also be at higher potential for violent acts. Providing services and care and working around alcohol can also increase the likelihood of violence. Additionally, the time of day you work and the location that you work, such as late night shifts, working in high crime area, these are also risk factors. And if you think about the world of work, we have a lot of people that are going to fall into these type categories. And as a result of the pandemic, we're seeing not just the traditional first responders, the police, the fire, the EMT, but now we're seeing hospital workers, doctors, nurses, 
support personnel, and even workers coming out of long-term care facilities who have day after day been exposed to death, fear of exposure themselves, uh, as well as fear of taking home the virus to their loved ones. And when this keeps going on day after day after day, also exacerbated by the fact many of these people are working uh, long hours under really tough conditions, all of this is going to increase their potential likelihood of having stress, anxiety, and potentially even developing into PTSD if not addressed. And how does PTSD present itself in workers' comp cases? Prior to the pandemic, typically when we saw PTSD, it was really with those people who had typically either witnessed a workplace violence or a catastrophic injury uh, where they saw a coworker that was, you know, catastrophically hurt, or they themselves perhaps were catastrophically injured. Certainly you can have a physical injury and develop PTSD as well. But as I said earlier, since COVID, PTSD is now showing up in hospital workers and these long-term care facility workers as well. Any prolonged exposure to an ongoing adverse event like these people have been experiencing now for a year plus can certainly expose them or predispose them uh, to PTSD. Again, whether or not these cases are actually compensable is obviously going to vary based upon jurisdictional regulations because every jurisdictional looks at PTSD and mental health from a slightly different perspective. PTSD does start with an exposure to a critical incident and symptoms must last for 30 days or more and really must disrupt that person's normal life pursuits. Traumatic stress is our normal response to a traumatic event. And if we leave it unattended, it can develop into what we call a psychological crisis, which can disrupt our psychological balance and our ability to cope with the situation. So then, how is PTSD being addressed in workers' comp? Again, looking at it from a, you know, a pre-claim perspective, you have many employers out there that are really taking a proactive approach to really addressing the problem today. They are engaging experts trained in what we call critical incident stress management, or CISM, to intervene with their employees early and to provide these employees with an opportunity to, the technical term is debris, but really it's simple as talking openly with someone trained in critical incident stress management about the incident or the prolonged exposure that they may be having that is bringing on this traumatic stress. The goal of crisis intervention really is to mitigate the impact of the trauma and to help accelerate that recovery for that individual. And we do this by providing education around stress and stress reactions. We have to reassure them that they're going to recover from this. We have to give them education around the signs and symptoms that they can expect to see and ensure them that these things aren't necessarily abnormal. And we help provide them with coping skills and what we call emotional venting, because individuals do need the support. 
also as a part of this process, we will be able to really identify individuals that may not be dealing with the incident uh, well and make recommendations for referral for additional professional care if needed. So this is a great opportunity, again, to intervene early and if there is an issue that doesn't look like it's going to be resolved through some brief interaction, we can get them referred over to the professional care that they need. It's going to help us stabilize that individual, reduce their symptoms, and really help them function. You know, we've talked about the pandemic, crisis intervention, or critical incident stress management now being used for uh, frontline workers, not just those first responders and EMT, but now we're seeing it being used in hospitals and in these long-term uh, care facilities for the workers. Many hospitals are putting critical incident stress programs in place for their workers. Some train and use internal resources. Some use external experts or even volunteers from the community. I know on our crisis response team, we have one crisis response specialist who volunteers providing critical incident stress management to hospitals in her area. She meets with doctors, nurses, as well as all of the support staff, anyone who is needing to talk about their concerns. These individuals are experiencing a lot of stress and anxiety. Again, long work hours combined with the daily exposure to those critically ill patients, people dying, and again, that fear of exposure to themselves or even their long ones. So I have to commend her for her volunteerism and as well as the hospitals for recognizing that they do need to offer this type of support for their employees because if left unattended, it could potentially develop into PTSD. Another quick example is with nursing home workers. Many of their patients there for a significant period of time, so they develop relationships. So as they see these people becoming ill and potentially dying, they too are experiencing a great deal of stress. And I know that we have done a good bit of telephonic debriefing and crisis intervention with these type of facilities, again, because they want to be there and support their employees in this critical time. Great information on those interventions, Tammy. And Nikki, uh, what about pharmaceutical interventions? What types of medications are being used to treat PTSD in workers' comp? Yeah, so in addition to a lot of the things that Tammy talked about, just another lever you can pull, if we will, on the pharmaceutical side is to add a medication. We have really good evidence, fortunately, for which drugs that are out there that can be of benefit in a condition like PTSD. And in fact, we've got some workers' comp-specific guideline support through the Official Disability Guidelines, or ODG, that point us to which drugs are first line. And generally, the first line drugs for this indication are antidepressants, particularly the SSRIs, like sertraline, paroxetine, fluoxetine, and an SNRI drug that's known as venlafaxin. Those handful of drugs have really good evidence. Uh, the trial 
that should be started in a patient is recommended to be at least 12 weeks long before we switch the therapy. So it's not you know, a straightforward, again, it, it requires some individualization to find which drugs work the best, but they do really, really show some benefit in this condition. And I think of note, too, is that people who have PTSD, as Tammy was describing, they typically will also suffer from additional indications like depression or anxiety, et cetera. So those antidepressants could be having you know, dual benefit or sometimes triunal benefit for that patient. So they, they really are good ones to try. Interestingly, I have to mention this because it's just, it's fascinating and there's been some great research in the investigational drugs area, specifically with regard to PTSD. Psychedelics have really started to come under some investigational study for mental health disorders in general. So things that typically in the past have been used for their hallucinogenic effects or their euphoric effects, recreationally, uh, things like ketamine, LSD, psilocybin, which is the active compound in magic mushrooms, all of them are now being studied for things like anxiety, depression, even addiction. And MDMA is one that is on the horizon. It's basically the component that's in ecstasy or molly, which are street drugs, of course, used for their euphoric and bliss-inducing effects. But research-grade MDMA is being looked at now in humans to treat PTSD. It, it works very much similar to the, the way that the antidepressants I just mentioned work. It promotes the release of those feel-good chemicals in the body like serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine. It elevates serum oxytocin, which is a natural hormone released uh, in mothers uh, and things like that that promotes that sort of bonding feeling or that feeling of well-being. So some of the things that they're finding from that research is that MDMA in the human patients that they're testing it in will result in decreased hypervigilance and anxiety, increased relaxation, enhanced mood. So much so, in fact, that the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, has designated MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD as a breakthrough therapy. What that means is that they've given it a special designation so that it will expedite development and review of that drug. They, they consider it to demonstrate substantial improvement over available therapy or potentially substantial improvement. So right now, those drugs are undergoing phase three clinical trials, which are the last step before being approved or denied by the FDA. So it's just really interesting. One of the potential benefits they're finding there is that MDMA is only administered a few times, unlike most mental health meds, which I mentioned, take daily long-term use in order to find their effects. So it has some potential. We'll have to see what happens with that. Um, we'll learn more, I think, in the coming years. So I think in general, though, in, drugs are, again, one of the levers you can pull. It's important to approach any mental health disorder for optimal treatment consisting of a combination of psychotherapy along with medications. We can't just apply drugs in a vacuum, and, and in fact, they can enhance some of the things Tammy had discussed to try to promote recovery in order to achieve our best outcomes. And when we speak of anxiety and COVID, I'd be remiss to not address concerns that some employees may have regarding the vaccines. For some, there seems to be reluctancy based on fears of uncertainty regarding its effectiveness and possible side effects. How do you think this will impact the workplace going forward? Yeah, this is such a hot topic. I cannot tell you how uh, often in the past few months I have talked to friends and coworkers and family. They've all had kind of questions about this. and. Certainly, uh, my age group, I would consider myself still young, fairly young. I think what we're seeing that I have to address first is there's just been this substantial misinformation circulated via social media where 
I know myself and a lot of my peers, that's our primary news source these days. So there's just a lot of misinformation circulating wrongly claiming that the use of the vaccine will alter a person's DNA or that it's not safe because it's never been tested before. There's even things out there ranging all the way from, you know, the vaccine includes fetal tissue or, or there's microchips in it that Bill Gates is using to track all of us. There's just a lot out there that, that needs to be addressed on top of just the general fears uh, that anybody might have with, you know, new medication or a vaccine in general. Um, one argument that I've seen quite often is what I think is termed the recovery rate argument, where if you're already healthy and probably won't suffer much from the disease itself, is it really worth it to get the vaccine? And so that's one thing to address. And I think what we need to look at is what, what is the efficacy rate? What is the safety rate? And what is the trade-off from not getting the vaccine? So let's say you're concerned about taking time off of work to go get vaccinated. You're concerned about lost time due to any side effects that might occur once the vaccine is administered. Well, a couple things. So the good news is there aren't a lot of side effects that have been uncovered. The most common is injection site reactions. So your arms generally sore for a few days, might be a little bit painful, red. That is pretty typical of any vaccine, as many of us know. The, the thing that we are seeing sometimes, however, is some people feel pretty crummy after getting their first or second dose. Some have had to take off work, which is, it is a reality and it's something to prepare for. But what I often tell people is that lost time is maybe a day, you know, maybe 72 hours at most, but if you contract the illness, you're looking at an, un, an unknown amount of time that could knock you out for weeks, months. You also don't know the long-term negative health effects or consequences of contracting COVID. There's a lot that we're still learning. So in my mind, it, it makes perfect sense to do everything we can to prevent beyond the, the general steps that a vaccine is a good tool in that fight. So. You know, just, just to address some of the things that I've been hearing and discussing with many that we've had this discussion with is the, the vaccines that are out there today, we've got the two that are messenger RNA vaccines or mRNA vaccines, those by Pfizer and Moderna, uh, the two dose shots, and really how those work. I think it's so important to understand how they work to put any fears to bed. They get into the body and basically give instructions to our bodies on how to make, it's a protein that's present on the surface of the coronavirus. So they tell our body how to make this, and then our immune system basically practices recognizing that and producing antibodies against that protein. That's all it is. It's just a set of instructions. And the efficacy is fantastic so far. I mean, we don't get this kind of results with most of the vaccines that are out there. The overall efficacy of both of those is over 90%, which is just pretty phenomenal. And of course, we're still gathering data, but that's what we know today. And they're starting to put out some research and efficacy against the variants that we're hearing so much about today. So all that information's out there. If you're interested and want to go look, look for a reliable source that can point to that. The thing about it never having been tested, it is true there have never been any mRNA vaccines before that have been approved before now, but there have been multiple studies over the last several years that have looked at this particular technology uh, and its potential place in, in treatment of multiple diseases. And the way that a, a vaccine approval works, there are rigorous safety uh, approval processes required before any drug is recommended for widespread use, and this one is no different. The vaccine did receive fast-track approval through the Food and Drug Administration, but I think it's important to understand what was fast-tracked and what wasn't. It's really just a process designed to speed up the development and expedite review of those drugs that treat some serious condition. 
And so in this case, the, the regulatory side, sort of the paperwork, housekeeping, approval process, looking at the data analysis, the FDA's review process was all fast-tracked. What wasn't fast-tracked was the clinical trial stuff. So the enrollment of patients, monitoring for side effects, the clinical setup and the follow-up. We went through tens of thousands of people getting tested around the world uh, and gathering information along the way uh, where we're closely monitoring for any adverse reactions and safety events continue to be monitored after approval. So I think just educating on what's out there, what is the cost benefit of, of, of taking this type of a treatment, how we can just really give ourselves a leg up on how to prevent you know, long-term fallout and adverse outcomes from COVID. These are important things to know. And I think making sure you have a really good source, um, talking to your healthcare provider and doing your own research is, is important in, the, in this particular um, scenario. Another round of great information from our subject matter experts. Thank you all. In the fourth and final podcast of our series, we'll talk about best practices and new approaches to treating mental health in workers' comp. It's one you surely won't want to miss. Until then, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.